I hope you have a Bible with you. If you do, uh, if you don't, grab one and uh, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 32 and 33. Isaiah chapter 32 and 33. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I have many of them, but this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. There are so many wonderful passages of Scripture that are buried in the Old Testament that we must bring to light. And one of the reasons why we don't bring them to light is because most of us will look at a book like Isaiah and say, you know what, I just don't understand it. I don't know how to get a handle on that. And I know what you mean. Uh, for me to understand the book of Isaiah, uh, I would have to do more than just how I feel if I were airlifted and dropped in the middle of the woods. And then I have to find my way out. That's how I feel about any of these major prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, if I'm left to myself and I just find myself in the middle of a book. And so it can feel that way if you're not going through the daily Bible reading. It can feel like you're, you're in the middle of the book. And we've airlifted you and we've dropped you right into the middle of the action. How do we find our way out? Now, fortunately, if you're reading the daily Bible reading, and you're going through the Old Testament with all of us together as we read through the Bible, you have already read chapters 1 through 32 or 33, which you'll read this week. And in reading those chapters, you will have, it'll be like paying attention to what's happening when you're going into the woods so you know how to get out. It's as simple as that, and it's very good. One helpful thing may I suggest to you and that is this, that whenever you read a chapter, try to pick one verse from that chapter that highlights most of what the chapter is talking about. Kind of like an overview verse. And if you've done that faithfully, or you've thought about doing that, and you've kind of followed the topics through the book of Isaiah, you have realized that by the time, you will realize that by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 32 this week, you'll learn that God is not happy with how His people are living. He's not at all happy about that. I mean, that stands out like a sore thumb. Not only is He not happy with how His, his people are living, but He's not happy with how the world is living either. And so he describes in the book of Isaiah the steps that he took then and the steps that he intends to take now and in the future to judge the world for the way we're living. That makes this a very important passage of Scripture. I would think that we would look at Isaiah and we would say, you know, this is, this is really critical for us in the day and age in which we live since God is going to bring to our attention how He intends to judge the world. Now, the reason, why I like, the reason why this is so relevant for us is because if you take all of our institutions that God has created, He created the family, He created the church, He created government, those who have saturated themselves with God's Word understand life and understand our obligations and responsibilities and the wonderful privileges that we have to serve the Lord. 
One of the reasons why this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture is because if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. Because in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, we have these famous words. Now, I've taken them a bit out of context, but the fact of the matter is you can clearly understand what it's referring to. The Lord is our what? Judge. The Lord is our two lawgiver. And number three, the Lord is our king. He will save us. When our founding fathers established this nation back in the 1700s and they wrote up the Constitution of the United States, because they saturated themselves with God's Word and knew God's will and purpose and plan for His creation, it was easy for them to decide that we're going to divide the government into three branches. We're going to divide it into the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. God is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. And our founding fathers did that because they understood other passages of Scripture in the prophetic sections of Scripture, including the one that says, man's heart is like a filthy rag, desperately wicked, who can know it. And in order to prevent our national government from abusing its power, they decided on a checks and balance straight from the pages of Scripture. Now, I don't know. That encourages me to want to know God's Word better. So let's begin. I have two very simple principles. It won't take much time at all to give them to you, but when you think about them this week, I'm hoping it will be a great encouragement to you. Principle number one, Chapter 32, verse 1 and following. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. When we look at that, the first principle is that a king is going to reign in righteousness. Now, many kings throughout history have reigned in righteousness. But I'm hoping that when you read this passage of Scripture, you're going to say, I don't think that's been fulfilled yet. That is yet to come. When this king is referred to in chapter 33, it's not just a king. In verse 17, it's now the king. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Forget those second two verses. But keep in mind that your eyes will see the king. And finally, when you get down to verse 22, the verse that I just read, it's no longer a king, the king, but it is our king. Personalize that this week. Now, in this chapter, the Bible describes in chapter 32 the wonderful transformation that's going to occur when... This king reigns in righteousness. We're not going to look at those verses that refer to that, but pay attention to them while you're reading this passage of Scripture this week. But the thing I want to bring to your attention is not the wonderful transformation at this point, but the context 
in which we find this passage of Scripture. Isaiah wrote this passage of Scripture, and he was writing to people who were under a very serious invasion by a foreign superpower from the east. The Assyrian Empire was invading Judah. And in invading Judah, they took their good old time. They did it over a period of years, intimidating uh, the country of Judah and Israel, the northern tribes as well as the southern. And it was a constant concern for the children of Israel. This is the context. There are references throughout the book of Isaiah to this Assyrian invasion. Constant references to it. Look at verse 2 of chapter 32. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind. Now, he does not describing a nation at this point, but he's using weather. He's using environmental conditions to prime the pump, so to speak, so that we understand the horrible, horrible fear that the children of Israel are living under. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest or the storm, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So we can begin to feel for the children of Israel. We can understand the predicament that they're under. And then when he gets specific about it, he says things like this in verse 10. In a year and some days you will be troubled. For the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Verse 12. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In chapter 32, verse 2, I want you to notice that this particular verse inspired a great hymn of the faith. As the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Familiar with the hymn? A shelter in the time of storm. But the second principle now begins in chapter 33. In chapter 33, the Bible tells us in verse 1, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered yourself. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. Once again, a reference to the Assyrian invasion that they are under. And the children of Israel had to watch city after city after city, village after village after village being taken by the Assyrians. Until eventually the Syrians surrounded the city of Jerusalem and threatened to take it. But God spared the city of Jerusalem. And not only does biblical history tell us that, but secular history tells us that as well. It's a good backdrop for principle number two. Jerusalem will be delivered. It was delivered during the Assyrian invasion. 
and Jerusalem in the future is going to be delivered from the Gentile world that will attack it before Jesus comes back again. So principle number one, a king will reign in righteousness. That gives me great hope. And number two, Jerusalem will be delivered. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 33. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. It's a prayer. It reminds me of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, what will I do? I will forgive them of their sin and I will heal their land. Well, the children of Israel are praying this way. They're praying that God would deliver them, that God would no doubt forgive them. And you and I should never, ever underestimate the prayer of a minority of people. Because that's what it is. It's certainly not the majority. It's a minority. I want to conclude my sermon this morning with verses... 17 and following. I want to read 17 again, and then I want to jump down to verse 20, and I want you to follow me through 20, 21, and 22. And we'll be done. In 17, the Bible once again says, Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. Jesus is coming back. This is definitely future. Jesus is coming back to rule and reign on this earth. And Jerusalem is going to be delivered. Verse 20. Look upon Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the city of our appointed feasts. It is the Jerusalem of the next part of the verse. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be a quiet home, unlike what it is today. It'll be like a tabernacle. We like to camp. We like to go out in the woods, and we like to set up a, a tent and, and pretend like we're nomads. And we sit around a campfire at night, and we enjoy telling stories and making s'mores. And he uses that as an illustration. He says, Jerusalem is one day going to be like a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us. We need to feel very included in what Isaiah is saying in this passage of Scripture for indeed the promise is to us as God's people in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 21 in another great illustration. Jerusalem is going to be a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail. It's not talking about a, a merchant ship or you and I looking on the shore of a broad river saying, oh, my ship is coming in. He's talking about a warship. He's talking about a ship that has enemy, enemy soldiers on it, ready to invade once it lands. 
He says Jerusalem's not going to be like that. There'll be no galley with oars to sail, nor majestic ships pass by. No, and why is that the case? Because the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. What we cannot do unless we separate the powers because of the sinful nature of man, Jesus is going to be able to do because he's sinless and he can be all three. I can't wait for that day. I'm looking forward to it. And I think all of us should understand that this is our hope. The return of Christ to rule and reign with us. And so that's how I want to end the sermon this morning. But I want to make a simple application in verse 23 for all of us. In verse 23, the Bible says, Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Three words that bring us back to the illustration of a ship. Tackle, mast, and sail. But now he's talking about Israel. Now he's talking about the future of his church. And notice what he says. He says, your ship almost sank. Your ship almost didn't make it. The only reason it makes it is because of the grace of God. I can add that easily because you and I, when we look at verse 23 and 24 and come to the very end of this passage of Scripture, we will see what it says at the very end of verse 24. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. It's only because of the grace of God. It's only because of God's plan and purpose for us that we have a future to look forward to because for all intents and purposes, this ship is about to sink. But God says, I'm going to keep it from happening. Listen, the application is clear. I don't want anybody to have the impression that you and I have great hope in what's going to happen in this world apart from Christ. We should never come to that conclusion when God is so specific that it's only because of our relationship with Him, our attachment to Him, our connection with Him that we have any hope that we will experience what He promises in His Word. And when you read through the book of Isaiah, you're going to see the wonderful transformation that God is going to bring about on this earth time and time again in wonderful little sections just as He focuses on the Assyrian invasion that we all have to look over our shoulder and wonder about. He's focusing on the wonderful transformation that's going to occur. But listen, it's all going to depend upon God forgiving our iniquity. Now make it personal. Have you been forgiven of all of your sins? Are you living the way the Lord wants you to live? Or are you like the nation of Israel where God spends a book describing how unhappy he is with the way people are living and what he intends to do to judge that sin? But God has given us an alternative. 
And the alternative is for us to come to him and through Christ to recognize that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and that he is willing to forgive us if we'll but come to him and acknowledge our sin and from the heart say, Lord, please forgive me. I believe that you died to pay the penalty I deserve. Let's close the service by singing this great song. It's a wonderful invitation to come to Christ into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And will you make the decision? Will you say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord, my Savior. I want you to forgive me of all of my sin. I want to be able to have hope in the future coming and what it will mean for this world in which we live. Let's sing it together. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for what you did for us on the cross. Thank you for your everlasting love. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your grace, your mercy, and your peace in our daily lives this week as we seek to honor you in everything that we do. And we pray that you'd bring us to this place next week to worship you. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen.